It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined by one of our very favorite people from our very own channel. It's Dino Badala, who hosts the Dino Badala Show on Progress, airing from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but he's hanging out with us super early this morning to talk about an issue that is uh, very close to, to him and, and ought to be close to all of us. So, Dean, thanks for waking up this morning. It's lovely to talk to you. I wake up early. early. I, li- I listen to your show every day. I wake up. I make my coffee. I'm up every day. Now, I do listen to your show sometimes, but I, I am up at 7 a.m. just no matter what, doesn't matter what I do to my alarm. If I, I had a I 6 p.m. show, I would wake up at 5 p.m. every day. <laughs> right. Well, no, you wouldn't. But still, it's like, and it's only 6 to 9. It's not like overnight. It's not like I do from 6 o'clock at night to like 4 in the morning. That would be different. It's over That's at true. 9. It's still right. a reasonable my sister, time. My sister works overnights, and she's, I, I don't know how. It's hard. That's different. Yeah. I, if I worked overnights, I would not be. I'd be sleeping now, or I just would have stayed up continually at the end. That would sound like I'm in some kind of experiment where sleep deprivation and see like it still makes sense. <laughs> but no, I, a, I slept fine. Listen, for the sleep first time in the show, both of together. us, yeah, and both of us in the, at seven o'clock when we're like, hello, depending upon how much voice clearing, throat clearing I've done before I started speaking because it's six something and I can't really talk because I don't want to wake people up in the house. Um, you know, it does kind of sound like a challenge for my voice so i understand <laughs> i feel your pain dean i feel your pain um oh, okay over so this is i just want to sort of set up the the conversation about what's happening in gaza by saying that i am not an expert um in right. it um right. and i generally tend to watch and be horrified um and this this has happened many 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 times before I recall um, an intifada in 2014. So I recall mm-hmm. that was that was a pretty significant one that lasted a couple of weeks, a couple of thousand dead um, in that. So how did this start? I think that is maybe where we should start the conversation. How did this current uh, conflict. It all goes begin. back to 1948. Gonna no, no, no. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. To We're going to do a Rachel Maddow opener here and just start <laughs> the decade that it started. Yeah. I'm going to go from now to my show beginning, and I'll just continue from there. Uh, <laughs> the reality is that the seeds for every dispute in the Middle East go, goes back to to the creation of the state of Israel in, in the way it was done from the point of view of the Arabs who were living there because of the time in the UN created it. It wasn't organically created. The UN voted and said, we're going to divide what was up, what was known as Palestine. It was under British control into an Israel, into a Palestine. But there was an equity right from the start. There were about 2 million people living there. 1.3 million were Arabs, 600,000 were Jews, but they gave the Jewish population, which is less than half of the total population, 55% of the land. They gave 54% to the, to the Arabs who were double in size. But it goes... It flows from there. So much has happened in between. I mean, the current dispute now, it's hard to say if there's one specific thing. 
what has gone on when we're not seeing headlines of violence, the last time there really was this kind of violence was 2014. It was the, the war between, again, Hamas and, and the Israeli uh, military. Was in between there so much happens, it doesn't get any press. So there's not one thing that sparks. For, for all those seven years, the people in Gaza, which are now over 2 million, live in what human rights groups have called an open-air prison. They have no ability to leave unless the Israeli military lets them leave. They live in double the, double the size of Washington, D.C., but they're on top of each other. It's densely populated. And they have, you have about, just recently, statistics show, about 80% are on international aid because there are no jobs, there's no commerce. You've got nearly 90% don't have access to clean water directly. They have to get it from international agencies. They limit electricity. So there's not a lot of hope there. That continues every day. Right. So when you have something that that outrages them. It's easy to get people on board with it if you live, if you're in Hamas or even people in Gaza. And there's no polling done, so I don't know how many support the military action here or not. But their lives are, are hopeless. And if you give people no hope, then they're easy to go to the next step. I mean, John Kennedy had a famous line, when you make peaceful revolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. It, it applies here the same way. Right. There's no opportunity, no options. And, and to compare that to the West Bank, where my family lives, there's, there's, well, it's not great. They still live under occupation. There's shopping malls, new hotels, there's commerce, there's jobs. And what you don't see are missiles flying from the West Bank towards Israel because people have hope. They can actually have hope in this life, not hope for a better life in the future. Continuing to keep Gaza like a prison like this makes no sense. It's repeating the same thing and hoping that it's going to change without trying to actually have international investment into the region to change things. So what started this one? You know, they could say to displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem who have been there for generations. It could be the Israeli police throwing smoke grenades and firing bullets in the most famous mosque in Jerusalem during Ramadan. But it's not that. It really is the ongoing daily injustice that just bubbles up and explodes at a point. Mm. It feels like this. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna use words that I used I, almost I exactly last summer when we were talking about the the racial reckoning. It it feels like this is a different moment in terms of people who are not immediately affected by the oppression and violence that we are seeing standing up and saying this is not okay. Like like everybody seems to have learned a little bit of a, an intersectionality lesson. Uh, mm -hmm. over the last couple of years. And I was incredibly heartened to see the protests in New York City over the weekend that were, you know, attended in huge numbers by Jewish Americans who were saying yeah. we're not Zionists and this is not what we want. And we believe in a free Palestine. And we believe that we have, you know, we believe that our liberation is tied up with your liberation. And that's the only way that we're all going to live on this planet uh, together. I don't usually see, I mean, this is, we were taught when we were start, when we started in politics, like this is the third rail. You can't talk right, about exactly. it. You can't criticize yeah. Israel. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, you will lose your job. You will lose your career. You will like, you really stay away. You're, you're not an expert. And that led a lot of good progressives to be like, I don't know that issue's so complicated. I get, I just, uh, I don't know. This time feels different. Like people do feel like they're, they're standing up and saying what's right. And are, are you seeing that as someone who has, yeah, you know, always Very engaged so. on this issue. Are, are you noticing up, there, that? There was, yeah, growing up, there were no politicians on either Democratic or Republican side that would stand up too often 
for the Palestinians here and there, and maybe lip service, and some would lose re-election if they really made a stand. And, and that was a message sent by groups like APAC, that if you stand up right. for Palestinians or criticize Israel, you're going to lose your job. Now there are too many. I mean, we just had a letter sent last week, 25 House Democrats in a letter to the State Department uh, condemning this, is, the Israeli government essentially helping settlers steal Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem, who've been there from the 50s under these Byzantine laws, going, oh, no, but they have a right to it. Even though these Palestinians have lived, lived there since the 1950s continuously through now, they want to evict them and give their homes to these Israeli settlers. And so you had that. And the group was very diverse. It was from people, Ayanna Presley and AOC, to Judy Chu mm-hmm. and Chewy Garcia and Cory Bush and others. And then you had remarkable speeches on the floor last Thursday, again, an eclectic group of diverse people where Ayanna Presley, Cory Bush, AOC, Mark Pocan, and others. I mean, Ayanna Presley, I quoted in my CNN article, about it, you know, she said, as a black woman in America, I'm no stranger to police brutality and state-sanctioned violence. And she connected directly the struggle of Black Lives Matter to Palestinian justice. And they're not the same in a fact, factual way, but they're the same in that they're minorities who are being oppressed, who often are killed, and there's no consequence for their killer. And, you know, she said point blank, we cannot stand idly and complicitly by and allow the occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people to continue and she even wanted to leverage our $3.8 billion in aid to Israel to effectuate peace. And, and I think we, we should leverage it. You know, we are giving $3.8 billion. It's not a situation where you look at China and they're oppressing the Muslims there. Well, we're not giving billions of dollars in aid, so we can denounce it, but we don't have any leverage to change it. Here with Israel, we do it. And my goal is for the Palestinian Christians and Muslims who live there, it's 2021. We are long past the time that the Christians and Muslims who live there have the same security, safety, equality, and homeland as the Israelis. It, you know, that's the only way we're going to have any chance for a lasting just peace for both people is if you have really looking at the other side, in this case the Palestinian side, with humanity. And too often in American politics, it's just easier not to because it, it makes your brain hurt and makes your soul hurt. Mm-hmm. For what's going on. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to get involved. But maybe this changes it. I mean, look, the Democrats are pressing the Biden administration to come out for a ceasefire. Yeah. So President Biden said yesterday, you know, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, there, there will be a ceasefire. But when this leaves the headlines, I just want people to remember the occupation hasn't left the headlines. There's no vacation from the occupation. It's there every day. My family in the West Bank has limited freedom. Forget national self-determination. They don't have the personal self-determination. And that the checkpoints are closed. They can't go to work. They can't go to school. They've, they've done nothing wrong except they live in the West Bank. And because of that, they have rights in the view of the Israeli military. Zero rights. So you've got that. In Gaza, they're in an open-air prison. Within Israel, my fiance's from Haifa, and she's Palestinian, but Israeli citizen. They have lesser rights. And as a practical matter, I mean, that's the reality. That's what you're seeing in East Jerusalem. People have lived there from, since the 50s, but since they're, they're not Jewish, they don't have the same rights as the Israeli Jews who, who are the settlers who are extremists. But the government's helping them take the land from the Palestinians. So there's a level of complicity there with the Netanyahu administration in doing this. Is part of the reason so why this time is... I was going to ask. Go ahead. (laughs) It's part of the reason why this time is different because Netanyahu is his power is diminished because you know he's been investigated for corruption, and there was like a whole legal case. Is that part of it? 
I think there needs more domestic politically here because at other parts of the world, they spoke bluntly about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. John Oliver did a great mm-hmm. monologue Sunday saying things that you would never see here. And I remember talking to John when he was just in comedy in the clubs and we would talk about the issue. And he'd say, in the U.K., it's completely different. We see what he thought would be an honest view. He goes, here in America, you see one side and you call out the other. And this was years ago we would talk about this. So I'm not surprised John who comes at this from growing up in another country, is just sharing what he's learned about the conflict and, and studied on it. The I think it's domestic politics. I mean, now we have, years ago, we didn't have Congresswoman Omar and Tlaib and Jamal Bowman and mm-hmm. Cory Bush. And they emboldened others, Hank Johnson, who is a great congressman from Georgia, who's on my show today, and I have him on often, I like him a lot, that they're speaking out because they see it's an injustice. And, you know, injustice anywhere, as we know, it leads to just injustice everywhere. And it's really, it's not the same as the black American experience. It's, the black American experience is unique. The, but the idea of a struggle for justice for a minority, because look at, you have missiles firing both sides here, Hamas and Israel. But just like in America, the minority side is the one that's disproportionately impacted. So you have over 200 Palestinians killed. And 61 of them are children. On the Israeli side, you have 10 killed. One is a five-year-old child. That's heartbreaking. It's pain. There's no winner in this battle. There's pain and heartbreak. But you cannot pretend that it's equal impact because they don't start equally. The Palestinians don't have the power. They don't have the resources. And their suffering is not the same at all as, as those on the Israeli side. And those are the facts. That's the reality. And as more Americans understand that, maybe they push our elected officials. Again, the best case is to use our aid as leverage to condition not just a peace deal, but lifting the burdens on freedom of movement and and for respecting civil rights for Palestinians in the West Bank, lifting the prison sentence on the people on Gaza. We can do it perhaps with international support there because nobody wants them firing missiles at civilian targets. Hamas, that's horrific. That's horrible because no one should live under the missiles, but no one should live in a prison cell either for for now decades for nothing they've done personally, but there are leaders there who want to destroy Israel. So it's complex, and I do look at the other side. I, I do something that many on the other side don't do and try to say, well, what, if I was Israeli, how would I feel missiles being fired in my house? It would be horrific. But you can't punish collectively two million people for the sins of a few. That flies in the face of international law and justice. And there's a reason why Human Rights Watch just a few months ago and Bet Salem, which is an Israeli Jewish human rights group, has said now Israel's actions are an apartheid legally, not like hyperbolically mm-hmm. activists have said mm-hmm. for years, but legally now constitutes an apartheid and that by law it is Israeli Jews having more rights than uh, Palestinians who are Christian or Muslim or atheists or no faith whatsoever, in with, even within Israel now, but of course in the West Bank and Gaza. So it's going to build and build. And I don't know if it'll change policy or not, but I think the next generation of leaders in America will change it. Why do you think that America has been so different from other countries in their viewing of this conflict? Like the the fact that, you know, John Oliver is you know saying war crimes and I can sit there being like, well, they seem to have bombed media outlets who were covering the atrocities. Uh, Mm -hmm. under a guise that Hamas was operating out of the building, which uh, it seems to be where there is no evidence of. Um, 
Okay, so all of that is a war crime, right? Like everything I just said constitutes a war crime. You cannot target journalists who are covering a conflict. You certainly can't lie and pretend that there was a terrorist cell operating in their building. If you say that kind of thing, there needs to be evidence to back it up. There was no evidence, even though they said there was. Uh, That's a war crime. And yet I'm still like, I have to spell it out before I say the word war crime, because the idea of saying Israel committed a war crime is really anathema to 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 me and and to you know the the america that that i grew up in why do you think the uk has such a different like why were they so far ahead of us in being able to criticize israel is it the aid that we give every year is it the like what is it or is it is it their right wing and our right wing are real similar right I think it's domestic political issues where Democrats were silent as well as Republicans were. In fact, there was a time George Herbert Walker Bush, the dad, uh, conditioned aid to Israel on stopping settlements. And it made many Arab Americans very happy and became Republicans going, look, he's being fair. And then that he walked that back. And when he lost reelection, some people credited the the, the forces who support Israel and also include Christian evangelicals that that outed Bush. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. But it scared people to talk about it. And you know that building you talked about, if people saw the image of the building. It was a really nice apartment building. Um, the idea that Hamas was operating offices in there, even Tony Blinken, the, uh, and Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said yesterday Israel's not giving them any evidence of that Hamas. Right. But if Hamas was operating like a, a business office out of the building, the idea that to Israel they can destroy an entire building, which didn't just house the AP and Al Jazeera, it housed people's homes, and they right. gave them one hour. Think about if you got a call going, Canada's going to blow up your house. You did nothing wrong. You have one hour. Look around. What are you going to take? And how would you feel? And there's, you know, I mentioned it yesterday. It, I've always been, when I think of the Palestinian conflict, I think of the famous poem by Langston Hughes, Harlem, which we know it more as, you know, a dream deferred and, and a raisin drying up in the sun. Mm-hmm. And he goes through and he goes, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it? And it continues on. Does it hang sweet syrup or, or does it explode? And that's the last line. And he's writing about the black experience in 1940s and 50s in America. And that when you defer the dream of Palestinians for a homeland and, and for equality and, and dignity, it's, it is the recipe for radicalization. You don't have to be any kind of expert. You don't need Malcolm Mann to tell you. We all get it. Right. If you're hopeless, if you're living a life... <laughs> That literally within a few mile area, you're on top of each other. It's two million people in Gaza. There's really no opportunity. You have no freedom to go anywhere. 60 to 70 percent unemployment. So people are sitting around doing nothing, which is again is a recipe for bad things. And you can expect more of this. It, it's also more remarkable. It's been seven years since the last one that happened. This isn't every day. And I hope people take away from this that this has not been a thousand years. They've not been fighting each other for a thousand years. No, it began in 1948. Right. This is going to leave the headlines. And what's going to happen, as usual, is that the headlines will fade on this issue. The world will go back to its business and the Palestinians will be forgotten again. But the occupation will continue and the injustice on a daily level will continue. And until we in the quiet times make inroads to change that, there won't be safety and security for for either people, which if you want, we should both be rooting for. And you're going to have more of these pockets of violence. It's a question of, is it in a year, six months, six years? When is it going to be? And is that acceptable? I mean, one of the things that we, I think, has shifted is that we actually talk about the disproportionality. Like, Mm -hmm. the fact that 
as you said, 200 um, Palestinians have died and it's 10 Israelis. And I think, I, I mean, I remember back in college even noticing that usually when it's this, you know, the CNN breaking news alert comes, like those numbers are inverted. And then they usually lead with the number of Israelis dead. And then sort of as an afterthought, add after a comma and 200 Palestinians have, have died. And that's the shift I feel in this moment. Is that real or is it my imagination? Well, from, if you're a Palestinian heritage, uh, every media story is biased against you. Like I watched, uh, so for years, my entire life, you know, there is more balance. I mean, you know, I watch at MSNBC, um, Andrea Miller, uh, Andrea um, Mitchell. Mitchell, right. Andrea Sorry. Mitchell. Mm-hmm. I watch her like every day at noon. I have my lunch. And that's why I watch her. And she had a Palestinian on, uh, Professor Kalady from Columbia. Years ago, she probably wouldn't have had him on alone. And then she had someone on, Jeremy Bash, who's not connected to the Israeli government, but he gave all their talking points. But he did it in, in a separate segment. So at least people got to see that going on, and they actually see it, saw it from an actual Palestinian-American. A lot of times, even the media now, You'll have well-intentioned people who are not from my community on, and it's good to have allies on. But then there's no, but there's no Palestinian voices either. Like you, you should have both. You should have. It's great when we have progressive Jewish right. allies with us on TV to making the case. This is not a religious battle. This is about one for justice and equality. Because I guess my Jewish friends happen to be progressive. To them, when they're upset with Israeli policy, it doesn't reflect their values as someone who is proud to be Jewish. And those values to them are about compassion and equality and helping those in need. Fighting for the underdog is something that has marked the Jewish American experience, even during the civil rights movement yes. going down. So, so to see the opposite going on where you're viewed as supporting the, the aggressor and the occupier and the bullier, it hurts them because it flies in the face of their values. And, and there's polling shows, I mean, Jewish Americans over like 60 have much more of an emotional connection to Israel if they've been there or not, they just do. Because they grew up in a different world. They grew up in a time when Israel was threatened with extinction by some of the Arab neighbors. Right. And now the younger Jewish Americans grow up, but that's not the world. They're a regional superpower with a nuclear arsenal who's got the most sophisticated weaponry, except for Europe and us, is Israel. So they don't grow up in that world at all. And conversely, they don't, and also, I mean, uh, commensurately, they don't see any kind of emotional connection by smaller smaller numbers in polls i've seen jewish americans have an emotional connection and that should trouble those who support israel that they're losing younger jewish americans Mm -hmm. and stunningly last week ron dermer the former israeli ambassador in netanyahu said literally said we should start focusing more on recruiting christian evangelicals in america to support israel than young jews because they're more critical of us I mean, I thought you were the Jewish yep. state, so you're going to turn mm. your back on Jews because they're criticizing you and go with these right-wing Christians who only support Israel because in their mythology that that Jesus returns and all the Jews die. I mean, literally. Right. That's how you get the end time. Scenario. It's insane to me. And I don't mean Christianity's mythology. I mean, this this view that they have is way out there. It's not, it's not in the mainstream Christianity at all. It really is their own philosophy that they've made up, their own religion in a way that Jesus will return, who's all about compassion and helping people, and all the Jews will die or convert to, to Christianity. Like, what? That's crazy talk, but that's why they support Israel. It's so also incredibly anti-Semitic. 
sick. It's a cord, it is, yes. I mean, yeah, I think that's been one of the, the strangest things of the Trump administration was watching the the sort of Zionist moves that he would make. And he and Netanyahu obviously, you know, agreed on quite a bit about how to govern. Um, you would see the, the evangelical Republicans stand up and applaud. And I, you know, I I live in a, a, a I live in New York City. I have tons of Jewish friends. There are, there are lots of Jewish organizations that I pay attention to. And and none of them are applauding. And at a certain point, doesn't the ruse get too obvious? Like, this is not actually about a Jewish state. This is not actually about being Jewish. This is about an, an oppressive state, you know, hurting the people around them. Like, it's about an apartheid. It's it's not about Judaism. It's about power. It's about land. It's, 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 it's about power and land. It's not like Netanyahu goes to the, the Torah or to the Old Testament before he... Right. From his actions. He, he's a, a secular leader. He makes decisions that are geopolitical and, in, in his view, the best interest of, of the Israeli people. So, but it's, it's completely secular. So the idea that there's, there's a Jewish state, but the policies are based on whatever, it is, in his view, keeping people safe, and it's an over-response over and over, and it's a disproportional impact, like we see in America. Disproportional impact based on people. Minorities suffer disproportionately there, in the Middle East and here as well, and we know why. And, and there are things going on within Israel. And I had last night Diana Buto, who is she's based in Haifa. She's a Palestinian human rights lawyer, and she was a negotiator for the Palestinians in peace negotiations. But you've got these right-wing Israeli extremists within Israel now that are chanting death to Arabs in the streets, which they've been doing for decades, but it's just getting more press now, and beating up uh, Arab Israelis, like my fiance's family, has to deal with this in Haifa. And now you have, then the reaction is you have some Arab extremists who are, who are beating up Jewish Israelis, which is really a whole different place we've not seen before. This escalates into an internal civil war going on. But the difference is the Arab extremists are acting essentially on their own. The, Israeli, the Jewish extremists are members of this group called Jewish Power. It's translated in English, it's called Jewish Power, which is like white power. They're they're a Jewish supremacist group that mm-hmm. very anti-LGBT, horribly anti-LGBT, like Iran is, like that kind of mentality, anti-women. The difference is they're part of the, the, not, the Netanyahu coalition, this, this group. So he brought them in in this last election, and he emboldened the same way Trump emboldened the Proud Boys and the white supremacists in our country. So now they're literally busing them to communities where there's Arabs in Israel to walk in the streets with bats and yell death to Arabs and chant it in Hebrew and taunt them with bats and beat them up. Um, so you've got a whole nother level that barely gets covered right now. And I really hope that part, that's where the Israeli government has to come down, the Israeli police. But the reports were, as Diana told me on the show last night, and as my future in-law is backed up, the Israeli police are essentially walking with them, with these guys yelling at the Arabs and not stopping them when they're attacking people and beating people up. So again, the analogy to America is, is pretty clear. When you see white mm-hmm. supremacists, and like Ahmed Albury get killed, and it took weeks. You know, the police had the evidence to charge those guys, those white supremacists, for killing him. Um, so there are parallels. It's not at all the same experience, but there are parallels. Hmm. And we're going to have to keep drawing them if people are going to keep paying attention in this country, which clearly is something that we need to do, even if Absolutely. and when there is a, a ceasefire for this particular conflict. 
Um, this is something that we can't just say it's complicated and back away from anymore. Um, Dean, thank you for hanging out with us this morning and sharing all of that. And I truly like the best to your family um, over there right now. It must be it must be really difficult for you to be so far from them and also know so much about what they're going through. So just like big hugs to all of you, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Thank you, thank you both very much for, for having me on for covering this issue. It's an issue that in the past didn't get covered. And, and even on my show, I don't cover it as much because people don't follow it. But when it's in headlines now, it gives it an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to inform people. And I do my best to make it less political and make it more personal about real life and what's going on for my family and other families there. But they're living through. It is personal. It is personal. Yep. It is personal. There's certain That's things you shouldn't take personally. You know like, the That's a good role. But this one, this is personal. This time it's personal. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. All right, guys. Great All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news. <laughs>